Order. Questions to the Prime Minister and Winterton. Number one, sir. Mr Speaker, before listing my engagements, uh, on behalf of all sides of this House and the leaders of all political parties, I think it's right that we should pause to pay respects, our full respects, to the members of our armed forces who have given their lives on behalf of our country in Afghanistan. This is a solemn moment for this House and our country. It is a day in which we put on record in the House of Commons our gratitude and our commemoration of the sacrifice made by 37 of our armed forces serving our country in Afghanistan. From the Royal Marines Sergeant Lee Holtram, from the Light Dragoons Trooper Philip Lawrence, from the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment Trooper Brett Hall, from 5th Regiment Royal Artillery Warrant Officer Sean Upton, from 40th Regiment Royal Artillery Lance Bombardier Matt Hatton and Bombardier Greg Hobson, from 1st Battalion the Grenadier Guards Guardsman Jamie James, from 1st Battalion the Coldstream Guards Guardsman Chris King, Lance Corporal James Hill, from 3rd Battalion the Royal Regiment of Scotland Private Kevin Elliott and Sergeant Gus Miller, from 2nd Battalion the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment Kingsman Jason Dunn Bridgman, from the 2nd Battalion the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers Fusilier Simon Annis, Fusilier Sean Bush, Fusilier Lewis Carter, Lance Corporal James Fullerton, Corporal Joseph Etchells, Sergeant Simon Valentine. From 3rd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Private John Young. From 2nd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, Private Gavin Elliott, Private Jason Williams, Acting Sergeant Mike Lockett, MC. From the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Welsh, Private Richard Hunt, Private James Prosser. From the Parachute Regiment, Private Kyle Adams, Lance Corporal Dale Hopkins, Corporal John Harrison, Corporal Kevin Mulligan. From 2nd Battalion, the Rifles, Rifleman Arimin Aries Toji, Rifleman Daniel Wilde, Acting Sergeant Stuart McGrath, Sergeant Paul McAleese and Captain Mark Hale. From 11th Explosive Ordnance Disposal Regiment, Royal Logistics Corps, Captain Daniel Shepherd. From the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, Craftsman Anthony Lombardi and Lance Corporal Richie Brandon. And from Number 34 Squadron, Royal Air Force Regiment, Acting Corporal Marching Wojtek. Nothing can erase the pain for their families. Nothing can be greater than the pride we take in their contribution to our country and our sadness at their loss. I know that the thoughts and prayers of the whole House are with the families and friends of all these brave men. Their lives live on in the influence they will have left behind on other people, and they will not be forgotten. Mr Speaker, we should also pay tribute to all those who have been wounded and who face rehabilitation, and assure them that they will have our full support at all times. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meeting with ministerial colleagues and others, and I shall have further such meetings later today. Anne Winterton. All members will wish to associate themselves with the Prime Minister's expression of sympathy to the families and friends of those who have fallen in Afghanistan since the House last met. Yeah. 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 Mr Speaker, 
When the Lisbon Treaty comes into force, the European Council will become a formal institution of the European Union. As the United Kingdom member of that institution, will the Prime Minister confirm that he is bound by its rules and is thus obliged to further the objectives of the European Union in preference to those of the United Kingdom? Mr Speaker, first of all, I, thank, I want to thank her for her tribute also uh, to those brave men who died in Afghanistan. And I hope that the message will go out today that all political parties, every member of this House, wants to send the sympathy and condolences to every family. As far as the European Union is concerned, we joined the European Union in the 1970s. We hold by our obligations to the European Union, but that does not prevent us representing the national sovereignty of this country. Dr Tony Wright. Could I, could I ask my right honourable friend which he thinks is more dangerous? Politicians becoming generals or generals becoming politicians? <laughs> Mr. Speaker, uh, I think I know what he's thinking about. Um, let, let me put on record my thanks uh, to the Chief of the General Staff, uh, Richard Dannett, for the work he did for our country. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The list the Prime Minister has read out of, the li of those who gave their lives over this summer in the service of our country is a very sombre reminder of the incredible sacrifices that the armed forces make on our behalf. These 37 men have left parents, wives, partners, children, brothers and sisters. And these loved ones won't just feel the loss today or the day when their loved one fell, they'll feel it for the rest of their lives as they think about the lives that could have been lived. And I think, Mr Speaker, we must be clear about what has happened in our country. Two wars over eight years have seen thousands of people serve, hundreds wounded, many more, uh, sorry, hundreds killed and many more wounded, and whole communities affected as they have celebrated the success of our armed forces but also mourned the losses. Now, I know the Prime Minister has looked at these issues before, but isn't it now time for a more fundamental re-examination of every aspect of the military covenant and everything we do for these brave men and women and for their families who wait for them at home. First of all, I, I, again, I, I'm very pleased that he associates himself, as I knew he would, uh, with the commemoration of those people who have died during the course of this summer. This has been a particularly difficult summer for our armed forces, uh, but also for the families of those members of our armed forces. Uh, and their worries about their loved ones who are serving in, in Afghanistan. Uh, I believe that what we have tried to do over these last uh, few months is to make sure, first of all, that all uh, military uh, men and women on service in Afghanistan and in any place around the world are fully and properly equipped for the tasks that they've got to undertake. And I'm happy to share with the House, as I will in a statement uh, a few minutes from now, the extra measures we are taking to protect our troops uh, in Afghanistan, particularly against uh, electronic uh, devices that have been the cause of 80% of the deaths over the last uh, few months. 
I also want to assure the House, uh, and I'm very happy again to go into this in more detail when we have the statement of Afghanistan, that we stand by the military covenant uh, with all uh, military families in this country and all those who are serving members of our armed forces and former members of armed forces. And that's why we published a white paper only a few months ago looking at the range of services from education and health, uh, the, the possibility of uh, jobs after uh, members leave the armed forces, help that is given when people uh, are uh, on location in the different uh, countries in which they serve. And I believe that that white paper is an indication, and I think it had all party support, of the determination of all of us uh, to stand by our military. If there are further suggestions about what we can do, I am very happy to look at this. Uh, we have uh, uh, an in-service allowance. Uh, we have increased the facilities available to members' uh, families uh, for phone calls. We have done what we can to make sure that the pay of the armed forces rises faster uh, than the pay of the rest of the community. We have done what we can at, at, uh, at Selly Oak and at Headley Hall to make sure uh, that we uh, give uh, the succour that we can to the, those people who have been injured. Uh, I, I believe that if you look at that record and if we build on that record, we'll be doing the right thing. But obviously, I'm happy to listen both to uh, members of the other side and to the select committees on what more we can do. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister mentioned um, Selly Oak and Headley Court. And what we do there is remarkable. There's no doubt about that. And because of the advances in battlefield medicine, many people who previously would have died of their wounds are surviving. Uh, and that is obviously fortunate, though they have to live with those injuries for the rest of their lives. Soon the issue will become, how do we help them as they grow older? So-called recovery centres put forward by organisations like Help for Heroes are excellent proposals. There are some concerns that the government is a slightly slow-moving partner in this endeavour. And can the Prime Minister update us on what's being done to help more of these recovery centres get going? First of all, let, let, me, let, let me say and pay tribute to the medical facilities that are available both at Camp Bastion uh, and in uh, Britain. Uh, I, I have visited them myself, as I know other members of this House has. These are the most advanced medical facilities that are available to our troops, and it is right that they be the best in the world. At uh, Selly Oak, which I have also visited uh, recently, I know that the care goes into helping those people who are injured, many people with very, very severe injuries uh, indeed. And I saw myself when I had visited Afghanistan a few weeks ago and then went to um, Selly Oak uh, only a day or two afterwards how quick the treatment uh, was, uh, that was given as people had been moved with speed from Afghanistan back to uh, Birmingham. I agree with him about the work at Headley Court, and we are anxious to continue to support that and are investing more in that. As far as uh, members of the forces uh, who uh, retire or who uh, uh, are, are not able to serve longer in the armed forces, I, I am concerned that compensation arrangements are, are satisfactory. And that is why, after the recent court cases, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence has set up a review, headed by a former Chief of the uh, Defence Staff, to look at those issues of compensation. As far as future employment and some of the projects that have come forward uh, to help armed forces, men and women, who are looking for alternative opportunities uh, after they recover from their injuries, we are determined to do everything we can in this respect as well. And again, I believe, and it's right to say, there is all party support for these, this extra work. Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As well as the physical injuries, there are, of course, the mental scars. It's estimated that after the Falklands War, more service personnel actually committed suicide than died in that conflict. We mustn't make the mistake that's been made in the past of brushing this under the carpet. In the United States, veterans are contacted regularly, even decades after they've served. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that that should happen here as well? 
As you know, Mr. Speaker, we have a minister that is nominated as the Veterans Minister. Uh, we try to keep in touch with all the veterans organisations. I myself met the British, uh, Royal British Legion uh, recently. At the same time, in the White Paper, in which we itemise the services available to soldiers, armed force members and former armed force members, we also uh, talked about the mental health services that are available for the future. We wanted to ensure that those people who are members of the armed forces and former members of the armed forces had priority in health service treatment, and that was the purpose of the White Paper and the recommendations in it. And again, I believe there's all party support for that. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I hope the Prime Minister will look at that specific proposal as well. Now, we are going to discuss Afghanistan in a moment, but I want to ask the Prime Minister a specific question about the Territorial Army, an organisation that plays a vital role in our armed forces and has indeed lost many people in Iraq and Afghanistan. I have had a specific case of a serving officer who is due to go to Afghanistan in October 2010. He's been told that of the training days he should have between now and then, he will only be paid for half of them. And let us be clear about what is happening here. Volunteers, and they are volunteers, being asked possibly to lay down their life in the service of their country are not getting the basic training they need. Does the Prime Minister agree with me this is totally unacceptable? Yeah. I shall look at everything he says on this and I will write to him about the individual case that he's raised. But I can tell him also that what we have done in the Territorial Army, which has been celebrating its 100th anniversary, what we have tried to make sure is that the effort of the Territorial Army can also be linked uh, to the work that we're doing in Afghanistan. And so we have given priority in the work of the Territorial Army to what it can do to help the effort in Afghanistan. And I, I will write to him with the details of what we're doing in that respect. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister told us in an answer he gave at the beginning of Prime Minister's questions that in his statement he's going to say that we must not send armed forces, armed forces personnel into battle without the proper training. Now, two things appear to ha be happening here. One is that basic training for all TA members are being cut, is being cut, but also I have this specific case of someone who knows he's going to Afghanistan in October 2010, having his training cut. I understand those that we've got conversation between the Ministry of Defence and the Prime Minister. I think they need to have a conversation after Prime Minister's questions where he says this is unacceptable and it's got to stop. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the reason the Defence Secretary was uh, talking to me was he was assuring me he was assuring me that the work of the Territorial Army that is directed towards Afghanistan is properly resourced and will continue to be properly resourced. If he, if he, has, if he, has, an individual, if he has an individual case that he wishes to raise with me, or any member has, I shall, I shall look at it in detail. But our determination is that every member of our armed forces who is in Afghanistan or going to Afghanistan is both trained and equipped for the work that they undertake. And he will see from the statement I make this afternoon, later this afternoon, that we are doing everything in our power to make this happen. Uh, and I hope that he will then look at the statements that are made by the Chief of the General Staff and the Chief of the Defence Staff, which will support exactly what I am saying. Madeline Moon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last Saturday, I was joined by the Porth Call Guides to celebrate 100 years of guiding. A year's celebration across the world is taking place to celebrate this wonderful movement. Will the Prime Minister join me in sending congratulations to the Porth Call Guides and to all guides who have taken part in this movement over the last 100 years and to those men and women who supported guiding throughout that period. Well, well, you know, I think all sides of the House will want to congratulate the guides. Yeah. Uh, 
and congratulate them on a hundred years of service to our country and congratulate those officers of the guides and those leaders of the guides who have done so much to encourage young people and young women in particular to make sure that they can make a very big contribution to the community. So our best wishes go to the guides on their 100th anniversary. Nick Clegg. Mr Speaker, I'd like to add my own expressions of sympathy and condolence. I'd like to add my own expressions of sympathy and condolence to the families and friends of the 37 British servicemen who tragically lost their lives serving in Afghanistan over the last uh, three months. We all owe them an immeasurable debt of gratitude for their bravery, their professionalism and their sacrifice. Mr Speaker, we also owe it to every single one of them to ask the difficult questions about what we're doing in Afghanistan. Are we doing the right things to succeed, as I strongly believe we must? There will be many people in the country today simply asking themselves why British soldiers are fighting and dying for a government in Kabul that is deeply corrupt and has presided over widespread electoral fraud. Now, I know he's giving a statement later about troop numbers, but does he not owe it to those troops to say clearly where he stands on an Afghan government he's asking them to defend? Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful, first of all, for him uh, uh, supporting the uh, message of uh, condolence uh, and sympathy that we're sending to all the families of those who have been bereaved as a result of uh, what has happened this uh, summer, uh, and I appreciate uh, his, uh, his, his direct comments on that. Uh, as far as our presence uh, in Afghanistan is, is concerned, let, let, me, let me say, first of all, and I'll talk about this in more detail later, let me say, first of all, uh, that no one can be satisfied with what happened during the elections in Afghanistan. Every one of us has questions that has got to be answered, uh, not so much about the security attached to the election, because a huge amount of work went in by our troops and our forces into the security accompanying the election, uh, but the amount of uh, ballot rigging that appears to have taken, case, taken place. And everybody, I think, knows that a million votes are being examined out of the six or seven million votes that happened, uh, and these are the subject of the International Commission examining these issues. So I hope that he will wait until we have the final conclusion from the Electoral uh, Commission. I hope he will then uh, accept uh, that their verdict is one that uh, we will have to uh, follow. Uh, I believe that this Commission, that is half Afghan, half uh, international, has looked at these issues in a great deal of detail, and I believe that they are going to report very soon. But I have to say to them, it, it is remarkable facing an insurgency that elections took place at all. It's remarkable that there were 6,000 uh, polling stations uh, open at all. And that is a tribute to our forces and other forces making it possible for this infant Afghan democracy to have an election organised by itself in the first place. Uh, and we are there, and I tell them why we're there, we are there to protect the streets of Britain. We are there because Al-Qaeda poses a threat to us as well as it does to other countries. And we are there because if al-Qaeda took control again or had an influence in Afghanistan under a Taliban government, then the people of this country would not be safe. Clegg, I'm, I'm grateful to the Prime Minister for his reply, but I just don't think we can live in denial about the total lack of legitimacy of the present Afghan government. General McChrystal himself has said that the job of our troops is becoming more difficult because of corruption in government. Hundreds of thousands of votes were given to President Karzai by a block block votes from a warlord accused of war crimes. So if President Karzai is declared the winner of this flawed election, 
can I be precise, will the Prime Minister urge Karzai to immediately form a government of national unity, bringing in opponents from other political groups and other ethnic groups, or he will risk losing the support of the international community? I'm grateful for his comments, but the whole purpose of the Commission that is looking at the conduct of elections is to eliminate those, those votes where there has been ballot rigging or fraud. And that is why it has taken so much time to examine these issues. And I hope he will wait till he sees the report of what the Commission has done, what they recommend uh, and what they propose, uh, whether it is for a second round or whether they have come to a conclusion about who is the winner. Uh, as far as President Karzai is concerned and the future, I will also talk about this in a few minutes, but I talked to President Karzai yesterday. I also talked to, to Dr Abdullah, who is the uh, second uh, candidate in the elections. I asked them for an assurance that they will sign a contract with us and the other allied powers uh, about the elimination of corruption, the proper conduct of government, the appointment of governors who can actually manage in the provinces, and the appointment of junior officials who can do that as well, as well as asking him, as I will report later, uh, to support our forces with a proper number of Afghan forces working with them. Gordon Prentice. Uh, two years ago, we lost blue light accident and emergency in Burnley, and everything went to Blackburn, 25 miles away from Shame. where I live. Shame. At, Shame. At, the Shame. Furthest, at the furthest edge of the patch. And people in Burnley and Pendle, members of uh, all political parties and none, want accident and emergency back in Burnley. And can I ask my friend this? As, as a first step, would he commission an independent review by clinicians from outside the area with no axe to grind? That's what people want. Mr Speaker, of course uh, I understand uh, his concerns and those of his constituents. And I'll ask uh, the Health Secretary to meet him to talk about these issues. But as, 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 um, as he knows, the reconfiguration of NHS services is a matter for the NHS locally. I understand that the review concluded in July uh, and it has been accepted by both uh, Primary Care Trust uh, and at the same time East Lancashire Hospitals Trust. And I understand there is a programme implementation board that's in place. Uh, and the board is confident that they will not undermine services uh, locally. Uh, but he will want to have that meeting with the Health Secretary and he can come back to me after it. Eve Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will appreciate that falling mortgage rates are of no value to most pensioners, whilst falling savings rates are actually leaving them out of pocket. At the same time, the things that pensioners do spend their money on, the cost of them, like council tax, food and fuel, are rising rapidly. Does he accept, therefore, that a 2.5% pension rise in April will leave many pensioners out of pocket? And what's he planning to do about it? Well, well, first of all, in, in, the, light, in the light of uh, what we knew was happening to interest rates, and I hope he will agree with me that it is important that interest rates are low and not high at this stage, in the light of what we knew happening, uh, the Chancellor made proposals in the budget to improve the, in, in, the individual savings account. And he made proposals for people to be able to invest more in that individual savings account tax-free. At the same time, he knows that we have taken measures. The pension credit is available to 2 million pensioners. At the same time, the winter fuel allowance will be paid in the next few weeks uh, to uh, pensioners with a higher rate for those who are over 80. And we are determined to do our best to ensure that even in a low inflation environment, 
the pension will rise by at least uh, 2.5%. So we are taking the measures that are necessary to make sure that pensioners are protected uh, against what is a recession that is hitting every country. But in our country, we have made special measures to help the unemployed, homeowners and, I tell them, pensioners as well. David Anderson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that the best way to resolve the Royal Mail dispute will be to get the parties around the negotiating table? And if he does, will he tell Lords Young and Mandelson to start to concentrate on that and stop the tap the CWU? Mr Speaker, we want a, a settlement of this uh, dispute. But we want to say that this dispute is not in the interests of anybody. And I, ha I, have to I have to say that if Royal Mail start to lose... If Royal Mail start to lose major contracts, like those of some of the major firms in this country, it will be difficult for them to regain that, these contracts over a short period of time. So I know that uh, government ministers are working actively to make sure that the parties, the management and the workforce are negotiating. I hope that they will do so, and I hope that this unnecessary strike can be prevented. Peter Bottomley. Experts in reputation management are reported as saying that their original injunction gave them Carter Ruck the power to prevent what was said in Parliament being reported. No court should grant such an order, and I intend to report them to the Law Society for asking for the injunction. Would the Prime Minister see if it's possible that any court that grants a secret injunction or an emergency injunction should have a copy placed in the Library of the House of Commons and in the press gallery here, if necessary hiding the name of a child or in grave national security? And will he also ask if any such emergency order is reviewed the next working day at the Court of Appeal? Well, I, 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 I may say I'm pleased he has raised this issue because I think it's important that uh, I and the Justice Secretary can, can say something to him about the concerns that he's raised. Uh, this is an issue where an injunction has been awarded, but it's been awarded in the context where it has to be, remain uh, secret and uh, people are not uh, told what the outcome uh, is uh, generally. Uh, the Justice Secretary has uh, talked to the parties uh, concerned. He is looking into the, this issue. He will discuss the matter personally with uh, the Honourable uh, Member, and I hope that on the basis of what he suggests, progress can be made, not just in this cases, but more generally to clear up what is an unfortunate area of the law. Katie Clark. Mr Speaker, um, the Prime Minister will be aware that the SNP Government um, has put um, a proposal for a coal power station at Hunterston in the planning framework um, in Scotland. Could he confirm that no such coal power station will be allowed to go ahead without carbon capture being in place? I think, I think she would agree with me that any new uh, uh, coal power station has got to be carbon capture compliant. And that is the issue that we wish to ensure happens in every area of the country in the future. Uh, we, are planning, we are planning major investments in carbon capture and storage. I've talked to people throughout the country who are wishing to make these investments, and I think it's important that we go ahead on that basis in the future. Mark Williams. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The uh, Prime Minister, I know, is aware of the extent of the affordable housing crisis across rural Britain and many of the innovative ways in which local authorities are trying to address the problem through Section 106 agreements. But does the Prime Minister share the sense of bewilderment and anger of many of my constituents that despite the bailout of the banks, many mortgage providers are still operating a very belligerent attitude, not giving sufficient mortgage offers to, uh, to mortgagees, uh, 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 um, offering them incredibly high and unaffordable deposits? And would he Yes, I, I, I do agree with a lot of what he said there, that, uh, that building societies and banks uh, have a, an obligation under the agreements that they've signed with the government 
to make, avail make available mortgage finance as well as small business finance uh, at affordable rates uh, to members of our community. But I think he will also agree that we have put aside $1.5 billion uh, to build another 20,000 extra affordable homes over the next uh, period of time uh, for rent and for low-cost home ownership. Uh, and we are doing what we can as a government to give local authorities more powers to build, uh, to make sure that the private sector responds with offers to people such as, uh, such as uh, shared uh, purchases, uh, shared equity, as well as the new public investment we are making. We are doing what we can and will continue to pursue a policy that gives, we hope, over time, everybody an affordable home in this country. Dr Alistair Macdonald. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The, the Prime Minister will recall some months ago that I raised serious concerns with him about, about banks now fleecing small businesses to recover the monies they lost uh, through foolish and reckless deals. Is he aware that things are getting worse in many cases? Indeed, Halifax, which is part of the Lloyds Group and is effectively nationalised, is one of the worst offenders. Credit has been withdrawn and, and, and credit has been refused. But worse still, I have a note here that says that <coughs> currently small overdraft facilities are costing £13 a month, to, even for £2,000, and that is going to go up on the 6th of December. To Question mark. I think the Prime Minister has got the drift of it. Can the Prime, Prime Minister, Minister. do can Minister do Prime Minister, I think the Prime Minister knows what the question is. We have signed uh, agreements about lending with these uh, banks and we are determined to enforce them. I can tell them that our evidence is that large companies are able to get uh, money at the moment, that medium-sized companies generally are able to get money, but there are specific sectors where it's very difficult, that small businesses need additional help, and that is what we are trying to make available uh, through the Department of Business. And I can also tell them that 200,000 companies have been able to get help with their cash flow uh, through the measures we introduced to help small businesses. £4 billion has been deferred by the Treasury. Now, that is a measure we have taken as we have helped homeowners and helped the unemployed, but it depends on us being willing to spend money to take us out of recession. That is our decision and that is our choice. It's unfortunate it doesn't have all party support in this House. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. On behalf of my party and my friends in the Scottish National Party, may I associate myself fully with the words of condolence and sympathy expressed by the Prime Minister. And on the military covenant, for some 12 months or so now, I've been trying to obtain information from government. Could the Prime Minister tell me now, please, how many ex-service personnel are currently in prison? I don't, I don't have the exact figure, and I will write to him uh, on that uh, specific matter. But what I do, what I do uh, say to him is that more help is available now than ever before to help people who leave the services so that they avoid either being homeless or, alternatively, uh, being without jobs or opportunities. And I think if he reads the white paper that we put forward our proposals in, he will show that more is happening than ever before to help the people. Now, that, of course, has got to be improved over the years, and we will do so. But I would hesitate to say uh, what the figure is at the moment, but I will write to him uh, immediately after question time. Lee Morgan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister has been a great uh, champion in the fight against child poverty, and under this government, child poverty has fallen. But, but there are still far too many children living in poverty, and in Wales, particularly in workless households. What further measures can he propose to bring down child poverty? Mr Speaker, we are committed uh, to eradicating child poverty in this country. We have taken half a million children out of uh, poverty as a result of the child tax credits, child benefit and other measures we take. 
Uh, I hope that there is an all-party consensus uh, on uh, removing child poverty, but I have to say to this House, you cannot cut child poverty if you cut child tax credits. You cannot cut child poverty if you cut educational maintenance allowances. You cannot cut child poverty if you cut Sure Start. And you cannot cut child poverty if you deny young people the chance to get both the best education and the best opportunity for work. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The RAF have identified the need for three further aircraft to replace Nimrod R1 spy planes. New Nimrods built in my constituency in Woodford, which the Government has already invested £3.6 billion in, are ideal for the task. Could he therefore explain why his Government has chosen instead to buy 40-year-old American aircrafts and how that ties in with his commitment to British jobs for British workers. I know, I know that he's interested in future work for his constituents, and that's why he's raising this question. I can tell him we haven't made a final decision on the next stage of orders, and I will write to him when we do so. Anne Moffat. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, I wonder if my right honourable friend shares my concern about the, the ever-increasing exploitation in the construction industry where foreign workers are driving wages down and they're not, comp not complying with particular safety regulations. It's something that comes to my uh, surgeries on a regular basis. Now, I think both the foreign workers and the indigenous workers have been exploited by the employers. Do we need stricter regulation? Well, it's exactly why we're bringing in the Agency Workers Directive and giving it uh, legislative power through the House of Commons. But I can also say that there is a helpline for vulnerable workers which we set up after we had the Vulnerable Workers Commission, that is available for anybody on a confidential and an anonymous basis to put their complaints, and we will deal with those complaints that people put uh, to us. It is in nobody's interest that vulnerable workers are left without the help they need, and I hope we can do everything we can to support them. Michael Spicer. Yeah. Will he confirm that he will soldier on to the bitter end? <laughs> Mr. Speaker, we, we, we have got... We have got a programme for government. Unfortunately, the other side do not. Yeah. Order. Order. Statement, the Prime Minister.